As we are going through the Sermon on the Mount this summer, and our series called Summer on the Mount, we have landed here in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 17 and 18, and I'd love for you to open up your Bible to that passage with me uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to take the next uh, two weeks, take four verses and and split them up into two parts. I think that's going to be the most helpful way to teach uh, this pericope, this section of Scripture. It's, the, I think, the way that you can understand it uh, the best and the way that you can apply it the best by taking these four verses, uh, 17 through 20, and uh, helping you categorize them in a way uh, that I think is going to be beneficial uh, for you. And so this week, what we are going to look at in this sermon uh, is the law and Christ, like Christ and the law. Next week in verses 19 and 20, if the Lord tarries, what we hope to do is as we go through verses 19 and 20, we will understand Christians and the law. And so much of what I think you will get antsy for uh, as we go through this sermon is what about next week? What about next week? What about next week? Well, that will be next week. And we would love to have you come back next week to hear that. But I think and I believe wholeheartedly what's going to be so important for you uh, as a Christian is to understand how we relate to the law, which is what we want to jump to immediately. But often we misrepresent the law, we misrepresent the Old Testament because we don't understand how Christ relates to the law and how Christ relates to the Old Testament. And so the reason that we're going to separate these two is that we would have a proper understanding of how Christ relates to the law so that when we get to how do we look at the Old Testament, how do we look at the law and the prophets, we are going to have a greater love and a greater confidence and a greater zeal for the law of God in the Old Testament in the context of how Christ relates to it and then how we relate to Christ. So that's the goal and that's the expectation through this sermon. Because if we want to understand how we relate to the law, how we relate to the Old Testament, how a Christian can read all 66 books in the Bible and say every one of them are meaningful and, and significant for me as a Christian, we have to know how Christ relates to the law. Because if we want to understand how to relate to the law, we need to know how Christ relates to the law. And really summing it up this way for you is that a proper understanding of Jesus' relationship to the law is crucial for believers to grasp the significance of the work of Christ and the usefulness of the whole Bible in the church's life. We hope to reach those ends this morning. Now, what I also want to give in way of uh, a reflection in my study and a reflection of my uh, desired humility in this text uh, is that when you start talking about the law and you start talking about Christ, you are talking about something that has the depths of God's love and justice and holiness of which that I just pray I can, uh, even in an introductory way, be faithful to this text. All that being said, you can preach this message a hundred times and still only scratch the surface of the concept of Christ and the law. And if you will handle and if you Christ will handle the law and the law, the gospel makes so much sense. The gospel is so clear. The love of God and the love of God and the Christ is clear. It's clear. If you will understand if you Christ in the law, if you understand God's law, you're going to understand the love of God and the love of sinners and Christ's to save the sinner. You've got to know the law, and you've got to know Christ and the law, how Christ relates to the law. 
Here's why, because it says it right there in verse 17 through 18, just to reiterate what it says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. So whatever we think about the whole Bible, whatever we think about the Old Testament and the law, what we can't think is that Christ came to abolish it. We, just, we can't think that way. Because Christ said, I didn't come to do that. He says, I have not come to get rid of them. I haven't come to destroy them, but I've come to fulfill them. He says, as a matter of fact, for truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until everything is accomplished that he has set out to accomplish. We got to recognize that the way that we look at the law has to be consistent with the way that Jesus looks at the law. And so I believe to help with that, I'll give you two headings as we look at verses 17 and 18 that I think are going to be helpful for you to, uh, as we dive in. Okay? Uh, you can write this in your notes. Uh, in verse 17, a, a heading you can put in verse 17 is the primacy of the law. The primacy of the law. How it's preeminent. How it's significant. How it's foremost. As we're looking at Scripture, as we're looking about of God's law, of God's word, as we recognize what is the place of the Old Testament, what is the place of the law in God's redemptive plan? Preeminent, prime, significant. Verse 17. Verse 18, you can put the heading, the permanence of the law, the permanence that God in Christ did not come to abolish the law. It's permanent. It's here until everything is accomplished. So it's not something that's disappeared over time or dissolved. It's a permanent fixture of God's redemptive plan. Now that we got the headings, just jump in to verse 17. There, Jesus says to those, as he's preaching on the mountainside and as he has his disciples close to him and he's preaching to his disciples and he's also preaching to the whole crowd he says this, do not think that I have come to, to abolish the law or the prophets. That Greek word abolish is, is the word kataleo, kataleo. And it comes from the same family of words that you and I get for the English word cataclysm, right? If something cataclysmic happened, that means something drastic, something significant, and something disastrous has taken place, right? Something destructive, and Jesus said, when it comes to the law, I did not come to create a cataclysm in the law. I did not come to create a destructive force that will uh, abolish or truncate or minimize the law of God. And then he, then he defines what he means by the law of God when he says that I did not come to destroy, to abolish the law or the prophets, you see, when Jesus says the law of the prophets, we need to understand that in a Jewish context, Jesus is encompassing all of what we have as the Old Testament. Right? You and I, we would separate the Old Testament in our English canon in a number of ways. Right? We have the law, we have the prophets, we have the writing, we have the history. Right? We have our, our canonical makeup in the English language quite a bit different, although most of the time through history, especially early on, you had, the, you had a triad. Uh, you didn't even have, you didn't have it separated all the ways that we do it and the ones that we do. But even early on, and you see often through scripture, that the writers, the prophets, even in the New Testament as they speak, they separate the Old Testament into two distinct categories. Law, prophet. And so for us to understand that, we should, should write it down that way. The two sections of scripture, the first is the law. 
or the books of Moses, as you'll hear it often talked about in the New Testament, which is the Pentateuch or the Torah. And so you know those books to be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That constitutes what Jesus means when he says the law. The second category would be the prophets or the former and the latter prophets, which we would call the major and the minor prophets as we begin thinking about this concept. But then if you don't think fully about the concept and you don't understand what you mean by the former and latter prophets, you would disclude a lot of books that the Jews would not have excluded. Okay, So when you talk about the former and the latter prophets, they're including books that we would consider the history, the poetry, and the writing sections of the Old Testament. So when they would talk about former and latter prophets, they would go ahead and include books in the history like 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. That would be included within uh, their canon of former and latter prophets. If that just went over your head a little bit, here's all you got to know. When Jesus said law and prophets, he meant the whole Old Testament. All of it, not just parts of it, not just the parts we can understand and the parts we can or the part we like and the part we don't. He's talking about all of the law. What's important about that is we look at what the law did and what the prophets did. We need to understand that the law laid down the law of God to the people of God. That's what the law was existed to do. The law showed God's people how God related to them. Isn't that a really good thing? Isn't it really, really good that God said, here's how I relate to you and how you relate to me. Here is my law and here's my design for humanity and all of those who would call me their God. This is is the design. That's a good thing, isn't it? It's a very good thing to have God's law. And God had given his law to the people of God that they would live for him, that they would live unto him without blemish, without spot. That's what the law did. The prophets reiterated the law of God. That's what the prophets are, as we talked about last week or the week before. Prophet is literally the mouthpiece. They were the mouthpieces of God to the people, to the nation. And what they did was they reiterated the law. This is why when you hear the prophets speaking oftentimes through the Old Testament, they will say, thus saith the Lord. This says the Lord. The Lord says this. And it's always pointing back to something in the law or something that from the law points us forward to a future fulfillment of the Messiah. And so you see the prophets in the Old Testament, not just the people, the prophets, but the writings of the prophets reiterated the law and pointed forward to the fulfillment of the law in Christ Jesus. That's what the law and the prophets did. Gave the law, how God relates to people and people relate to God. The prophets reiterated the law and pointed forward to the consummation and the fulfillment of this expectant Messiah that would come because everybody knew that they failed and everybody knew that there needed to be a better way and everybody knew that there needed to be a king who would come, who would never fail, who would be eternal. He would sit on the throne of David and he would rule and he would reign. And all of the prophets spoke And as they spoke and as they're recorded in Scripture, it teaches us even the very verses that you and I use on Christmas and Easter, we always hearken back to the prophets. And we say, thus saith the Lord, to us a child is born, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, and Everlasting Father. You're using it in the same context. 
You are saying, thus saith the Lord, that there's coming a time when the Messiah will come. And you know what? In a lot of ways, you and I use it a lot like they did. We know who the Messiah is in Christ Jesus, but in so many ways, we are still looking forward to the culmination and the consummation and the fulfillment of Christ, right? Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, are, we have the Everlasting Father, we have the Prince of Peace. He has sealed us with his Holy Spirit, but aren't we waiting for something else? Aren't we, as Christians, aren't we living expectant that Christ is going to come and he's going to make all the bad things good? He's going to make all the wrong things right? He's going to tear down the establishment of our world and he's going to to establish his kingdom? In the same way, we still look at the prophets of reiterating what was said and looking forward to what has come. It's important that we understand the law and the sections of Scripture It's important that we would apply them to our life as they relate to Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, I want to view the Old Testament the way Jesus views the Old Testament. I want to love the Old Testament the way that Jesus loves the Old Testament. Whatever he thinks about it, I I don't care what I used to think about it. I don't care what I think I think about it. I just want to think about it and know it like Jesus knows it. And whatever he says about it, that's what I want to say about it. You know what Jesus says about it? I'll give you two verses. John 5, 39. Why don't you jot that scripture down? John chapter 5, verse 39. He's speaking to those who are listening. And he says to the scribes of the Pharisees that you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's capital S scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Think about that. Jesus says, that Old Testament that you're reading there, that Torah that you're reading right there, the law and the prophets that you're reading there, it's not that it ain't good. It's not that it ain't great. You're just looking at it the wrong way. You think that the words in those books give you eternal life. You think that the truths in those scriptures give you eternal life. They don't. I give you eternal life. And what they're doing is they're showing you that I am he of whom it is spoken. There's a difference. It's the same thing about you and me. As you open that Bible and you think that that Bible gives you eternal life, you looked at it all wrong. It is this Bible that bears witness and testimony to the one who gives you eternal life. The same thing the Old Testament did. The same thing that Jesus is saying here to the scribes and to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness about me. What does Jesus say about the Old Testament? It's about me. That Old Testament, talking about me. Why should I love the Old Testament? Because it's talking about Jesus. Because it's pointing forward to the ultimate fulfillment in Christ. I'm all about getting to know my Savior through the law and the prophets. Another scripture, Luke 24, 27. Jot that one down. Luke 24, verse 27. He's talking to his disciples and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, another way that the Pentateuch or the Torah was, uh, was labeled was Moses, starting with the books of Moses, the law. Beginning with Moses and then all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see the problem with truncating or minimizing or, or abolishing the Old Testament in light of Christ? Christ is using the Old Testament to tell them, this is who I am and what I've come to accomplish. Far from getting rid of it, Jesus is using it as the foundation for his work, his ministry. 
and his job here on earth. Even the prophets even look forward to the culmination of that. I don't want to get rid of the law. I don't want to get rid of the prophets because it tells me that there's a coming kingdom. I don't want to get rid of anything that tells me that there's hope in a future for God's people, with God. All of it, so significant, so important. And I've got to understand how Jesus relates to the law so that I can understand how I relate to the law. And I know that Jesus loves the law, and Jesus loves the Old Testament. He's relating to the Old Testament because it has to do with him. And there are a lot of us that never think about that when it comes to the Old Testament. A lot of us who skip over the Old Testament during the DBR, we're like, I'll just do the New Testament. That's the one that matters to me. It's like, no, no, no. It all matters to us. It's all for us. All of it has been preserved throughout history as God has allowed for us to have all the words of God. There's something that we want to do if we want to view the Old Testament the way that Jesus views the Old Testament. Most of us, in one way or another, we need to reevaluate our view of the Old Testament. And that's point number one on your outline. You need to reevaluate your view of the Old Testament. There's another scripture in Matthew 13, 52, that I think does a very good job at uh, showing us, in the words of Jesus, uh, the primacy the significance of utilizing both the Old Testament and the New Testament to help us learn about God in Christ and learn about the gospel, the good news of Christ. The verse is Matthew 13. If you want to, you're probably just a few pages away from it. You can flip over there. Matthew 13, verse 52. There in Matthew 13, verse 52, Jesus said to them, Therefore every scribe, and if you don't know what a scribe is, just simply, among other things, they copied the law and taught the law to other people. Among other things, that was one of their jobs, to copy the law and teach the law. And he says, every scribe, as everyone who copies the law and teaches the law, those that have been trained for the kingdom of heaven are like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new And what is old? Did you see that? I want you to look at the word picture. He says, every scribe who is worth their salt, if you want to talk about last week being salt and light, any scribe who is doing their job, any teacher who recognizes the gift and the treasure of all of God's revelation are like the master of a house who brings out of his treasure the new and the old. They said, this is valuable. The New Testament is valuable. But the Old Testament, that's valuable too. And I'm going to bring out the treasures of my house, and I'm going to point you to the new, and I'm going to say, look at this. Justification by faith alone in Christ Jesus, who is our perfect sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for us, the lamb, the spotless lamb, without blemish. Well, Why do I know that I need a spotless lamb without blemish to be my substitutionary atoning sacrifice for my sin because I look at the old and I look at the treasure in the old and I bring it out and I say right here, even Hebrews goes back and says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And I look at the Old Testament and over and over and over again, I see my need for a substitute. I see my need that its blood has to be shed because the justice of God has to prevail. And if I'm going to be justified in the sight of God, 
If I'm going to be in right relationship with God, atonement has to be made just like I see it put forth in the law of Moses and the prophets. If I, if I need to know what it is to be the Lamb of God, I need to go and learn what it was to be the Lamb who was sacrificed to God to bring men in the holy presence of God. I gotta know. And a master of a house, the scribe, the teacher, is gonna bring them both out. And as Christians, what we're gonna do, because we wanna love the law like Christ loved the law, we wanna bring it all out. I want you to know all the New Testament. I want you to know all the Old Testament. Because if you wanna know about my Lord, you're gonna need to know about the old and the new. Because Jesus relates to every bit of it. He's to whom it proceeds from and to whom it belongs to and whom it is all going to culminate to. That means we can't see the Old Testament as antiquated. We can't see it as outdated. We can't see it as obsolete. The only way that you can see the Old Testament accurately is fulfilled and embodied in Christ Jesus. And that doesn't mean it goes away. It just means the way that you relate to the law now, which we'll talk about all next week, is in Christ. You relate to the law no longer on your own terms, no longer on your own merit, not only, not, no longer on your own foundation, but you relate to the law on the foundation of Christ. And you still relate to the law in so many ways, but it is always now through Christ. If you want to know more about Jesus, you need to know more about the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. Study the Old Testament. Study the law. Study the prophets. And if you take away the Old Testament, like so many preachers do, like so many churches do in our culture, there are so many movements right now about removing the Old Testament, separating the New Testament from the Old Testament. If you do that, you're going to take away the fundamental understanding of why Jesus came for us. You will. As a matter of fact, I'd like for you to try to take away the Old Testament and read to me the New Testament epistle of Hebrews. New Testament letter to the Hebrews. Do it. You would never be able to understand half of what the writer of Hebrews is saying if you don't have an understanding of the Hebrew Old Testament. All of it is bound together. All of it is useful. All of it is profitable. All of it is necessary. And if you would like to get rid of the Old Testament, you're going to speak directly against the words of Jesus. Just look at the rest of verse 17. You want to know what Jesus thinks about the law? He says in the rest of verse 17 of Matthew 5, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, far from ridding us of the law, Jesus came to embody the law and exemplify the law and to fulfill the law in himself. Far from telling us it's not important, he says, no, as a matter of fact, that's why I'm here. I'm here because of the law of God and the expectations for the law of God and the realities of the law of God. And in order for the law of God to be ultimately fulfilled perfectly, I have to be here. That's what I'm here to do on your behalf. We can categorically place all of the laws in the Old Testament in three categories, into three sections that is the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. Those are the three categories where you can place the law in the Old Testament. But before I go into detail 
about the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. There's something really important that you need to know about all of them. It's important to note that every law in the Old Testament proceeds from the moral law. And it's so important for you to understand the significance, as we will get to next week, of all the laws in the Old Testament, because all of them proceed from the moral law. Whether it's ceremonial or civil, it proceeds from the moral law of God. Simply because the ceremonial sacrifices, why are they necessary? A breach of the moral law. Civil law, why, were they, why was it necessary? We look, go, to the, go to the moral law. We did it a couple weeks ago, the Ten Commandments. Okay? The Ten Commandments say, thou shall not murder. Okay? That's a moral law, isn't it? But under that moral law, God also created civil laws to where murderers were punished punitively. Even those murderers who did not premeditatedly murder, which if they did, they would be put to death just like they put the other person to death. But even if it was manslaughter, even if they were called a manslayer, there were civil laws in the Old Testament as Israel was a nation that said, if you are a manslayer, you're not going to be put to death. But there are cities spread out through Israel called cities of refuge. And these manslayers would be sent to these cities of refuge so that they didn't have to reap some of the social consequences of being a manslayer in their hometown, which often would include the family of the one that you accidentally killed trying to put you to death. You see civil law. Did you see those civil laws tied directly to moral laws? In the same way, in the ceremonial system, why did there need to be sacrifice? Why did there need to be a burnt offering, a grain offering, a free will offering? Why did these offerings need to happen? Why did the Day of Atonement have to happen? Yom Kippur. Why did that have to happen? Why did the high priest have to go and make sacrifice for his own self to be in the presence of God and after he made atonement for himself, walk out and then sacrifice then on behalf of all of Israel for the sins of Israel, for their breach and the moral law of God. So all of these laws, as we jump into them, as we talk about them, you must understand that they all proceed from the moral laws of God. That's going to help you next week as a Christian understanding how to apply the law of God. If you understand that every law comes from the moral law of God, you're going to be so much better at reading the whole Bible and recognizing how it applies to you in Christ Jesus. So as we do that, the first one, the moral law. The moral law is God's law for all people in all times throughout history. You notice how that Ten Commandments, that just slips right over here into 2023? That's all those things still the same for you and me. That's the moral law found right there in Exodus 20. And even that law uh, can be summed up in a more concise way as Jesus did. Uh, You want to know what is the greatest commandment? And he says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others as you love yourself. Love God. Love people. As a matter of fact, if you separate the laws, uh, the Ten Commandments, you're going to find something. All those laws pertain to loving God and loving people. We have a problem Loving God and loving people, don't we? If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we all raised our hands for all the Ten Commandments, and we recognized by the end of that that we all broke all the laws, didn't we? We have a problem loving God and loving people. And so even in the Old Testament, when Israel was a nation, there were civil laws that, helped, that, that gave people a standard and ways and legislation to love God and to love others. But the moral law is for all times, for all people throughout history. And the reality of the moral law creates in us 
a need for perfect righteousness before God. I see that I breached the moral law. I see that I've broken the moral law. I don't love God. I don't love people, at least to God's moral objective standards. But I do recognize something when I read the Old Testament and I read the New Testament, that every moral law God ever gave, Jesus lived out perfectly. There is no other person ever been on earth who loved God perfectly and loved people perfectly. Jesus loved the Father, submitted himself every day to the Father, even unto death as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, is praying and praying to the Father, if you will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will be done, let your will be done. You want to talk about submission? You want to talk about obedience? You want to talk about love? Jesus says, I have only come to accomplish the will of my Father. He says, I and my Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You want to talk about union and love and intimacy at its greatest example. You look at the Son and the Father. And you look at the love of the Son to the Father. And then you will recognize that every moral law pertaining to loving the Father was fulfilled in Jesus. You want to talk about the other side of the law? You want to talk about loving people? You, as you look through history, as you look through the pages of Scripture, as you look to our world today, you're not going to find another person who loved people without spot, without blemish, the way that Jesus loved people. He loved us in such a way that he gave his only life that we should be brought into the right relationship with God the Father. Not only that, that he spent years bearing the flesh of sinful man in our stead to be joined to us in humanity, to associate himself with you and me, to be born, think about the God of the universe, being born helpless, infantile, in the arms of the mother that he created and knew since the world began, and he knew every hair on her head and all the days that Mary would ever have been alive, and yet he submitted himself, even in his infancy, to the care of his creation because he loved his creation so much and so perfectly, even as we iterated last week, that even on the cross he loved so much that not only he died for our sins, but he looks over to the thief on the cross and says, You know what? You're coming too. He loved perfectly, fulfilling the moral law perfectly. Second, the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law. These were laws directing the worship. And I put the continual relationship between Israel and God. Laws directing worship to God and the relationship between Israel and God. You see, Israel gave regular sacrifices as prescribed by God so that they would be ceremonially pure, giving them access to communion with God through faith. Did you notice something there? When we talk about through faith, we automatically go to the New Testament, don't we? We automatically look over at Ephesians, don't we? By grace through faith, by no work of my own. We always go to the New Testament, but we forget that faith started in the Old Testament. Hebrews reminds us that when it says that Abraham was justified by faith. But by faith, 
He followed God to a place that he did not know. You see, even the ceremonial system was lived out by faith. Because let's be real, even as you read throughout Scripture, it's clear over and over again that God is not pleased by the blood of bulls. He's just not. If you thought God was a bloodthirsty man, it was never about that. He says, I do not delight in sacrifice. I do not delight in the burnt offering and the blood of bulls and goats and rams. It's not what it's about. It's about faith. It's about the reality that even the ceremonial system, as Israel was walking out and saying, I will put my sins symbolically on this lamb, knowing that as you have told me, that this substitute is sufficient for me to be ceremonial clean, to be in your presence, I'm going to believe that and trust in that, that as this lamb takes my place symbolically here on this altar, that I know that I'm in right relationship with you because you told me that I would be if I would trust you. Faith, even the ceremonial system, was an act of faith. And we do know so much about the sacrificial and the ceremonial system. And the Hebrews gives us a lot of clarification on that, that there, there was no way that all of the sacrifices in the world and all the animals in the world was going to atone for sin. As a matter of fact, it says that the high priest has to return day by day and year by year to continue making sacrifices because this does not atone for the sin of man. But as a perfect spotless sacrifice on our behalf, Christ made an end to the sacrificial system. And on top of being our perfect, spotless sacrifice, he became our faithful high priest who, after making purifications for sin, sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. I want you think about that for a moment. The high priest couldn't sit down. I want you to notice that because he always had to be about the work of the sacrificial ceremonial system. He had to day by day and year by year continually make sacrifices on behalf of Israel to God. Thousands of sacrifices, thousands of days Jesus made one sacrifice, one time, and once paid for the sins of the world. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he sat down, because the work was done. You want to talk about the ceremonial law? Finds its culmination, finds its end in Christ Jesus. And you need to know about it. You need to know the ceremonial law. You need to know how it points to Christ, how Christ relates to it, how Christ fulfills it, and how we worship God, recognizing that it was never about the blood of goats. It was always about the blood of Christ. You want to love God. You want to love Jesus. You need to learn about the law of God. Jesus fulfilled these ceremonial laws that were required for communion with God. Therefore, every aspect of the ceremonial law found its apex in Christ. That's why you need to learn about the Old Testament. You want to know why Jesus is called the things that he's called? You need to understand the shadows, and you need to understand uh, the realities that we see in the Old Testament that point to Christ in the New Testament. Thirdly, the civil law. There's a third section of law in the Old Testament. The civil law. This one's interesting, isn't it? This is the one where you get a lot of your questions from. This is the one where you get a lot of your like, what do you mean we can't sow two different kinds of seed in the same field? What do you mean that I can't wear clothes made out of two different kinds of cloth? What do you mean by these things? What does that mean for us? Well, first we need to know what it meant to Israel and what it meant to Christ. 
See, civil laws were laws for Israel's government during the theocracy and the theocratic monarchy found throughout the Old Testament. Okay? Theocracy, theos, right? God. Right? Democracy, we're a democracy, we're a government by the people, for the people. Well, if it's a theocracy, it's a government by God and for God. Okay? You see that as Israel is coming out of Egypt into the wilderness, and you see that as through Joshua and Judges, as they're going into the promised land, you see that the nation of Israel has been formed and God has given them laws, and God is their king. Right? This is one of the biggest problems when you start reading through, through Judges and 1 Samuel. Uh, they said, we want a king. And, and, and they were like, Samuel's like, no, you don't want a king. God is your king, right? God is your king. Uh, and they said, no, 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 we want a king. He says, okay, but if you're going to get a king, you're going to get a king God's way. Civil laws. Civil laws, then as it came into the king, times of the kings, right? The end of second Samuel, towards the end of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, kings and chronicles, right? That was what we would call the theocratic monarchy. Theocracy, theocratic, God's rule, monarchy, monarch through a king. So all of the Old Testament that you can see, particularly from the uh, freedom from Israel all the way until the divided kingdoms into the, the uh, exiles of northern and southern Israel, or the southern kingdoms of Israel, were known as the theocracy and the theocratic monarchy. That sounded a lot like class, didn't it? That's all right. Hang on. Okay. Found throughout the Old Testament. God instituted laws for Israel's government that legislated, get this, and need to write this. God instituted laws for Israel's government that legislated equity, peace, and justice. That was the role of the civil laws, to legislate equity, peace, and justice in Israel as God ruled, and then as, even as God ruled through the kings. That was the role. That was the rule. God even laid out the roles of the kings of Israel and how they were to lead God's people. We know how that went, don't we? According to the moral law, how these kings did the very things that the law told them not to do. The law told them, if you read the law, you go to, I love it, because even when you go to to Leviticus and you go to Deuteronomy, hundreds of years before there was ever a king, you see in the laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it says, and when you get a king, it's like, who said anything about a king? God did in the law. And it says, when you get a king, you need to tell them they don't need to trust in their armies. They don't need to trust in their chariots. They don't need to trust in treasures. And they don't need to trust in foreign wives. Why foreign wives? Because foreign wives were often an arranged marriage between other countries to create alliances with other countries. And so among other things that were misleading about foreign wives, like bringing in foreign gods and other things, the civil law was enacted to prevent the kings from creating any kind of law and governance in Israel that wasn't solely reliance and and trusting in Christ. No foreign wives. Why? Because you're not trying to make treaties with Egypt and Syria. You're not trying to make treaties to to be taken care of because I'm your God. I'm going to take care of you. You don't need to trust in your armies because I am the Lord of hosts. You don't need to trust in treasures because I, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. That was the laws of God even to the kings. And the kings said, I don't, I don't want any part of it. They did all the things that the law told them not to do. And you see how that went. And even when Christ came, now and I, what I want you to see here, a little side post, what I want you to see here, 
when it comes to the civil laws, because when Christ came, right, there's, there's a lot of ideas about who the Messiah was supposed to be, wasn't there? If you read the, the New Testament, you even have this uh, sense, maybe this undertone of political, like, uh, unrest. You have this idea of, like, is Jesus going to come, you know, uh, make a political statement? Is he going to come, uh, I don't know, reunify Israel under the, the theocratic monarchy and Jesus as the son of David is going to sit on the throne of his father David and Israel is going to become that thing in which it used to be? Do, do you see why a lot of Jews thought that? Because it's actually very biblical for them to have thought that about Jesus. The reinstitution of these laws the civil laws of the Old Testament, was set aside and put on hold when Israel rejected the rule of God in Christ during Jesus' life. There's something to recognize is Israel rejected Jesus. Rejected. They, they completely threw away any idea of any future of the civil rule. Now, that was God's sovereignty. God knew that. That was actually God's plan to allow the Gentiles to come in. But you need to recognize something. If the king of David sits on the throne, civil law will rule under the rule of God in Christ Jesus. That, that would have been how it worked. However, they rejected Israel, or they rejected the Christ. Christ died for our sins. And what do you believe about Jesus in the future? That he's coming back to rule and to reign. So you actually don't have much different view of the Messiah than most of the people in the Old Testament. Because they were very confused when they saw Jesus. They knew some of the right things about the Messiah, but they didn't have it in the right order. The reality is, when it comes to the civil law, you and I believe in God's theocratic civil law, even in our time, because you recognize that there's coming a time where Jesus is coming back and he's going to establish the rule of God on earth. You believe that, don't you? Then you believe in the civil laws of God, just like they did in the Old Testament. And although the Jews rejected Christ, thus rejecting the civil role and rule of Christ on earth, Christ is coming back to rule and reign here on earth as he brings his kingdom uh, to fruition in an empirical way. And do you know that God's law, his civil law, legislated equity, peace, and justice, right? You remember that in the Old Testament? What is, uh, what is Jesus coming to establish? Equity, peace, and justice. Do you see, see the importance of understanding the civil law in the Old Testament? Because it's the very thing that Christ is going to establish here on earth. In the same manner, probably no, right? not, probably not, I'm not messing. all the laws aren't just getting taken over there in all other application. I highly doubt that we're going we're gonna to live in a time in the millennial kingdom where we can't wear, uh, we can't make uh, uh, clothes with two different kinds of fabric. I don't know. Maybe it will be, but maybe it won't. But the reality is, is you're going to have a civil law instituted by God, ruled through Christ Jesus, that will bring perfect equity, peace, and justice. So we can see as we look at all of these laws, these three these three categories of law, that either in Christ's life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his rapture for the, to the church when he brings us to himself, or in his second coming, every law will be fulfilled morally, ceremonially, and civilly in Christ Jesus. Did you see why it's important to understand the Old Testament? If Christ has come to fulfill all the things in the Old Testament, we need to understand why, what, he's got, what he's got to fulfill, what he's already fulfilled, and even what is Fulfilled in the future. We don't have the civil law of God. 
right now, do we? I mean, look around. You go look at what's going on at the ballot boxes. You go look at what's going on in your government. Do, are we seeing the civil law of God reigning and ruling on earth? Absolutely not. But if you believe in the civil law of God, you recognize that someday it's, it's going to happen here on earth. And who's going to do it? Christ. Because he's going to fulfill the civil laws completely. See, all scripture and all of history proceed from Christ and leads to Christ. And this makes it easy for us to realize, wherever you are in your understanding of Jesus, that you need to elevate your view of Jesus. And that's point number two. You need to elevate your view of Jesus. Like Whatever you thought about Jesus, you need to, you need to elevate it. You need to, you need to increase the way that you exalt Jesus, how you exalt Jesus, the way that you think about Jesus. Because we should be past the time where Jesus is just our buddy, Jesus, just the man upstairs, right? That Jesus is, you know, he's just my friend over there. Like, when you recognize who Jesus is, you ought to recognize his place in history. I mean, your very birthday is reliant upon the life of Jesus because it's 2023 from what date? The life of Jesus. What is B.C.? Before Christ. You realize that even the way that we calendar our world is based on the life of Jesus. And that's a man made thing, okay? But I tell you what wasn't a man made thing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians says that all things were made by Him, through Him, and for Him. And without Him, not anything was made that was made. I think that was Colossians and John at the same time. Right? Jesus, all of it, His. And then, the, and then Scripture teaches us that it was the will of the Father, it was the desire of the Father to give all things over to His Son. Think about this. The reality is everything about you and I, including the Bible, the very universe itself, is Christ's. All of it is it's His. So you think about elevating your view of Jesus, you've got to recognize that the person that you claim to know salvifically is the same person that you will know as the Lord of the universe. The same God who has saved you from your sin is the same one who will rule in your world for eternity. Same one. You ought to know him that way. I read a story that in 1987, uh, during uh, his visit to West Berlin, uh, President Ronald Reagan was uh, addressing this large crowd there at the, the Brandenburg Wall, you know, where he says, Gorbachev, tear down that wall. You remember that? I don't. I was not even close to being born. <laughs> but, but I still heard this story. Okay? Reagan shook hands with a, with a construction worker uh, that he had no clue. The construction worker had no clue who Ronald Reagan was. Shook his hand, had a conversation with him. The construction worker goes home and turns on the news. And when he turns on the news, he looks at the screen, and it says, U.S. President Ronald Reagan has visited West Berlin, and he was at the Brandenburg Wall. And it's literally the video of this man shaking hands with the President of the United States of America. And he said, I had no idea that's who I was talking to. I had no idea until he saw it on the news. News to you, right? News to him. That was the President. Like, news to you. Your Savior is also your Lord. News to you. Your Savior is the King of the universe, exalted in the heavens, preeminent above all of things, the one to whom all things in the Old Testament point, the one to whom all history will find its culmination at his return. That's your Savior, who is also your Lord. And you know what tells you that? The law and the prophets. The New Testament clarifies everything that the Old Testament signifies. And we ought to know it. 
Philippians 2, 9 through 11, you want to think about the way God thinks about his son. What do you think God the Father thinks about God the Son? Philippians 2, 9 through 11, that God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You know what that, you know what that entails? All people who have ever been alive, all of history. In heaven, on earth, under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in case you've been in church way too long, you need to recognize that Christ is not Jesus' last name. And it's fine to make it a proper name because we have, right, Christ. We know who the Christ is. It's Jesus. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is to come. That's the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Christ. That's how you get that word order from the Hebrew in the Old Testament, translated over into the New Testament where we get the word Christ, Christos, Christ, Messiah, Messiah, anointed one. He is the Christ, okay? And he is the Lord, right? Lord, Kyrios, right? He is the master, that all things are his. Everything is sub- submitted unto him. All that means what? You need to elevate your view of who Jesus is. You know what's going to help you do that? the law and the prophets, because nobody could fulfill the law and the prophets but the Christ Lord. Knowing Christ is the center of every law in Scripture and the center of the reign of God in all future worship should help us recognize our need to understand the law, to understand the Old Testament, because there is coming a time where the law uh, will pass away and will be made new, just like the heavens and the earth. But there's something that Christ says about that there in verse 18. Look at verse 18 of chapter 5. Jesus says there in chapter 5, verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. Verse 18, truly. Did you know the Greek word for truly? You know this word. You use it all the time. Amen. Amen. But Jesus, he says truly, amen, right? Why do you use the word amen? Because you are appealing to the God of the universe in, through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So you are praying with the reality of your identity in Christ. So who you are informs what you're saying and why you're saying it. And your amen means truly. Truly because of who I am. Truly because of what I'm saying. This is why you need to make sure your prayers are meaningful and your prayers are in the will of God because you're saying truly. Like truly, the reality of this is because who I am in Christ and who I'm appealing to, this statement matters. And in the same way, Jesus, for truly, amen. Jesus is the only one who's recorded saying this in all the New Testament and he says it over and over again throughout the Gospels. Truly, truly. This word serves to emphasize the truthfulness, the veracity, the reliability of what is being said and it emphasizes the truthfulness and reliability of the person saying the words. So that'll change your prayer life right there, won't it? Like when, when you were using the word amen, it says something about you as a person in Christ and who you are speaking of and what the words you are speaking. And here, we emphasize the reality of who Christ is and what he's saying. And he's saying this, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota and not a dot. The iota is the letter... Yod in Hebrew, yod, okay? Here's what you need to know about the letter yod in Hebrew. 
It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So he says, not the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet will be destroyed or removed or mitigated at all. And he says, you think that's a lot? He says, not a dot. You know what a dot was? A dot can be described as, as a serif, if you know like the English like fonts. Okay? A serif, it's, a, it's like this edge. It's this small edge of a letter that projects out from, it's not, even, it's not even the letter, it's just a small thing that projects out of the letter. In the Hebrew, it was often used to distinguish similar lettering. So they'd put a little serif, a little tell, a little tick. He says that not even a tick, not even a little serif, not even a little edge of a letter of the law will be removed or abolished until everything that I have come to do is accomplished. And since we know that all the law has its purpose in Jesus, we know that Jesus says that the Old Testament points to him. We can be confident that none of it's going to pass away until everything that Christ has come to accomplish is going to be accomplished. And that's why we know as we read the Old Testament, as we read the New Testament, that we can as Christians apply all scripture in light of Jesus. That's point number three. We need to apply all scripture in light of Jesus. Every bit of it, all scripture in light of Jesus. It's a few scriptures that I, that I want to give you the utmost confidence that from Genesis to Revelation, you are able, capable, and expected to apply all of the Bible. I'll give you a couple of scriptures. First one, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Okay, all scripture. Uh, as Paul is writing this to Timothy, do you know what is not in existence yet? The New Testament. So what is Paul talking about when he says all scriptures? The Old Testament. Paul, in the New Testament context, is talking about the Old Testament, and this is what he says to young Timothy, the teacher young pastor. All the Old Testament is breathed out. Theopanustos. It literally comes from God, inspired by him. Not inspired as like an artist, but inspired. Inspired. Inspiro comes from the Latin inspiro, which means breathed, breath. It's breathed out. It comes from the very words of God and is profitable. All the Old Testament profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Does that include the New Testament? Well, yeah. In context, it does include the New Testament. But to recognize in direct context what was going on right then, there was no New Testament codified. We're talking about the Old Testament. Second, Hebrews 10.1. Jot that down. Hebrews 10.1. Hebrews 10.1, the writer in Hebrews says, For since the law has but a shadow, and it is, the law is a shadow. It's a projection of something that you can see. But what about the shadow? It's a, it's a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true realities of these forms. Well, you know when you see a shadow, you aren't fooled. You realize that that shadow is actually representing something that is real, that is true, that is tangible, that it's empirical, right? That's what you know about a shadow. Well, in the same way, the law, the Old Testament, is a shadow of the true realities and the true substance of the form of these realities, which is Christ Jesus. It's good. You need to know about the law. You need to know about the prophets because it is and foreshadows and shows Christ in the Old Testament. Colossians 2.17, your last one. Colossians 2.17. 
Here, actually, within the context, the Apostle Paul is talking to the church in Colossae, and it's actually in disputing civil and ceremonial laws. Isn't that crazy? Right there. I mean, they're, they're dealing with this in the early church. Civil and ceremonial laws, because isn't that what they were talking about right there in chapter 2? New moons, Sabbaths, festivals, that's the context of the verse. And this this is what Paul says about keeping all of these things. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's like, the substance belongs to Christ. It's all pointing to Christ. And so we have to recognize that in order to apply all the Old Testament, which we'll get into that next week. Uh, You're going to be here next week. It's going to be great. Uh, We're going to get into all the application of us applying the law of the Old Testament in the life of the Christian. But to recognize that for you to apply faithfully the law of keeping the Sabbath, you need to recognize, just as Paul's saying, that like this isn't about keeping a day. This isn't about keeping the Sabbath. There we go. It's not about keeping the Sabbath. The reality is, is your Sabbath rest is in Christ. And that's what Hebrews teaches, that there is still a rest that remains, and that rest is in Christ Jesus. And you keeping the Sabbath isn't about you keeping a day. It's about you abiding in Christ. And why do we abide in Christ, according to John 15? That we may bear much fruit. There is your New Testament application of the Sabbath law of the Old Testament. Much more of that to come next week because I want you to recognize something. You can apply all of Scripture in light of Christ Apply the principle to your life today, therefore living out the laws of God in Christ Jesus to the glory of the Father and for the good of the church. Y'all ready to do that next week? Then let's pray. Got so much more to say here, so much. Uh, Got so much uh, breadth, so much depth, the scope of uh, the truths found in your word are manifold, are uh, so profound that us as Christians, uh, God, we need your spirit to illuminate that wor- the word to us that we would be able to understand it, to comprehend it, and to live it out. And, and my prayer, God, that is that our church here at Compass Bible Church, we would grow in our love for the law and the prophets, that we would grow in our love for all of the scripture as all of it uh, helps us understand who Christ is, what has always been your historical redemptive plan throughout history. And God, there's none of it that's insignificant. God, you are a detailed-oriented God. God, the Bible is detailed. You care about genealogies because you care about redemption. God, we, we love that you have been so careful and curated all of history to culminate in your son. And what matters is birth order. What matters is, is when this king was raised and when this king was destroyed and when this nation rose up and when that nation fell. And even as Acts teaches us, God, that we are even here in this geographical location in 2023 because of your sovereign plan and your sovereign choice, bringing about your redemptive plan even for the individuals. And you know how we learn about that. God, we're grateful for the Old Testament. We're grateful for all of Scripture that shows us the truths that are so precious and the treasures that are dear to us. We pray, God, even as we continue worshiping right now, we pray that our hearts would be aligned with your word. We pray that God, truly, we would raise our voices to you, recognizing and realizing who uh, your son is. Now he is exalted in the heavens and the ruler of eternity. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.